Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. And this week we have a guest who is all about speaking truth, about the truth, a fundamentalist sect. Her name is Laura McConnell-Conti, and she was raised as a fourth-generation follower of this group, which she left aged 19. I'm not sure about you, but I'm already intrigued. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking what it was like for you growing up. I understand you were raised as a fourth generation follower of a fundamentalist sect called The Truth. When you were young, did you realise you were part of a sect? What was being a child like as part of this and where were you based? I understand from doing some research that as children you were told that if you strayed, something bad would happen. What was that like for you? Um, yeah, sure. So first up, I should probably say I'm coming to you from Melbourne, um, which is the lands of the Kulin um, Nations. So I wanted to recognise that that's where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that yes, I was raised a fourth generation follower of the truth, um, which is a fundamentalist sect. Um, I was raised on the, in far western New South Wales on the lands of the Nyingpa people. Um, I was fourth generation, as you mentioned, um, third generation on my father's side and fourth on my mother's. So everyone I grew up around was a part of this group. I had a very limited view of the world outside our community. I lived in a very isolated part of New South Wales, mm. um, which is out towards Burke and Brewarrina. Um, so I didn't really see or interact with people outside my family group until I was about eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And then when I did, it was very limited. So I didn't really have a view that people lived very different lives to ours until I was eight or nine years old. Um, and and even then, it wasn't sort of until I was around 12 that I re- it really clicked that I was any different um, to the rest of the world. And I sort of, I guess I was raised to believe that people outside our group weren't really of interest to us um, and that they were going to hell and that we somehow had something a little bit special and that we should keep to ourselves and um, concentrate on our own view of the world. So, yeah, I, I genuinely believe that our people were the saved ones um, and that to think about a different kind of life was not really something you should do. Um, we sort of believed, as you mentioned, that when you left, if you left, that you would go to hell, that something would befall you, that you would, you know, have an early death or there'd be some kind of illness or sadness mm-hmm. in your life. And so we just didn't really, especially as a child, just just didn't really think about people who left again. Um, in fact, I had a second cousin who who did leave and who later died, unfortunately, um, in an accident. So I guess there was just this idea that when you left, you just sort of died or disappeared. <laughs> Um, yes I mean you know I had a I had a really wonderful childhood in lots of ways up until the point where I realized I was different I didn't have a tv or radio for instance I didn't know anything about the world outside um I lived on these remote farms with my family and sort of lived this um yeah wild sort of country existence I ran and swam and really had a a wonderful life on a farm with my extended family my father my grandfather worked as farmers I had cousins all around me Mm. Um, I drove cars from the age of eight I had motorbikes and tractors and I was one of kind of 23 first cousins and 40 odd second cousins so I didn't realize I was different to anyone else (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so it, it was an idyllic childhood in lots of ways, but I mean, also fairly hard life. I mean, we lived in sort of tumble down houses without proper things like plumbed toilets or telephones. Gosh. But um, I was loved and happy and didn't realise the world was any different. It wasn't probably until, yeah, I was towards 10 to 12 that I realised that there was also sort of this pressure to become kind of more of a, a fundamentalist woman, to behave in a certain way and to dress in a certain way. And there was more pressure on me from that age. But um, up until that point, I lived a very um, kind of idyllic life. What about education, though? Did you go to a school? I did, but because I, I lived, my family was so remote, the school I went to was so tiny mm. that I, the people I came into contact with kind of just accepted us the way we were. And I guess they were also a bit quirky. So, yeah, there were only five kids in my grade mm. um, until I was about eight. And so, yeah, the kids around us were also sort of very down-to-earth country kids who also had very basic lives. So while they weren't part of our group, our school was very tiny. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't come into contact with a great deal of people. That's really interesting because I actually grew up in the country as well, um, in quite remote parts of New South Wales and South Australia. Wow. Yeah. So I had quite an idyllic upbringing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, my family travelled a lot to right. the city and we certainly had family all around the country. So mm. my... You were familiar with life outside your farm. Yeah, um, we had TV, we had radio. I mean, I was, you know, listening to pop music, all yeah. those sorts of things. So that that aspect, I'm sure, is quite different. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't realise. I mean, I know that's very naive and a bit strange for people these days with the internet um, to not realise that there was much of a life outside my own family until, yeah, I was much older. Mm. So uh, can you tell us more about the truth? From what I've read, the truth calls itself a church but doesn't have any churches or headquarters, nor do its followers adhere to any written policies or doctrines. Not a single building exists in the truth church's name. It also believes the Bible is a dead book and blatantly describes all other churches as false. Is this true? How do followers of the truth come together and where? And what kind of rituals or worshipping takes place? Uh, yeah, so in summary, it is true. They, the truth doesn't believe in formal church buildings or formal writings. Um, they think those things are unnecessary, that in fact displays of godliness of, of, uh, of buildings um, and of richness are ungodly. Mm-hmm. So our followers worship in family homes um, and in rented halls or library buildings. Um, it's sort of a key piece of, their, of our belief system is, and also part of the secretiveness is that if you don't have buildings or formal written materials, it's very easy to, um, I guess, to deny that you exist. So mm-hmm. that's also, um, a, you know, a, a part of the insidiousness and the strange strangeness of the group is that actually they don't have a lot of things on earth Um in their name um Mm. although uh you know looking now from the outside i can see there are actually some large um, family farms in in the name of the group but they're in people's names they're not in the names of an organization Mm. so they're held by individuals so yeah i mean they basically tell us that um that part of what makes other religions false is their need to have buildings and written materials um uh because they tell us that you know that is them needing to prove to them and prove to the world and prove to their followers that they are the you know that they exist 
Mm. But the truth is the one true way because we don't need any of those things to prove what, you know, it's about our spirituality and about our um, what's in our hearts um, and our spirit. It's not about the existence of written materials or the existence of buildings. So um, they sort of twist that a little bit. Mm. <laughs> um, they also, by the dead, by um, saying that the Bible is a dead book, what that really means is that they believe that the Bible should be interpreted literally. Mm-hmm. So that basically means you read it and there's no interpretation or context or historical context required. What it says is what it means. So they literally interpret the Bible as it's written in the King James Version. So it's a very conservative Christian view mm. of the world um, and it is interpreted literally. So, yeah, we live, we live our lives in a very secretive, conservative state, mm-hmm. um, tending to live in, in these regional and rural areas, although not exclusively. There are followers in major towns and cities, but I guess you can sort of tell from the nature of the way we, the organisation works that regional areas kind of suit us better because they can run family farms, small businesses and sort of fly under the radar a little bit. Um, Yeah, so we worship in homes, um, back to your question, um, of our senior members who Mm. are called elders Mm. and we have these things called workers which other religions would call preachers and they basically move from home to home. They stay in people's homes and support us spiritually and help run, I guess, the group informally. So... I've also read that the truth demands women wear only long skirts or dresses in demure colours, no makeup or jewellery, and never cut their hair. Their long hair must be worn in a bun. Short oh. hair on a woman is forbidden. TV uh-huh. and movies are seen as a work of the devil, as is dancing and sex education. For someone who embraces all of those things, <laughs> I can't imagine how stifling that must have been, but perhaps you weren't aware that they existed. What was your experience as a woman growing up in this environment? Are, are yeah. the above things I've mentioned true? Did you feel like you were brainwashed to any extent? Um, yeah, I mean, looking back, I can see it was a very stifling environment. Obviously mm. at the time especially in my early childhood, I didn't realise that there were other options. But certainly as a teenager, it was difficult. Um, the appearance standards are very, they're, they border on ridiculous. Mm. You know, we are scrutinised and expected to, for the most hilarious things, you know, like the length of our hair, the colour of our hair. We can't dye it, for instance. Things like makeup we can't wear. And, you know, we're always on the lookout for, for people who might be dyeing their hair or might be wearing lipstick. Um, so, so yeah, we we should always dress modestly, mm-hmm. and um, modesty does vary from place to place. Um, and I am told in the last twenty years since I left, modesty has changed slightly, and that, for instance, women don't always wear stockings now. But we, you know, certainly when I was growing up, you always wore stockings. Your legs were never uncovered. Um, it it means usually covering your shoulders and not showing too much flesh, so you would never show cleavage, for instance, or wear a singlet. Um, we would um, always have dresses to our knee or below um, and closed toe shoes when I was growing up. I mean, that may have changed now, but certainly things like showing your toes, for instance, were considered um, not to be modest. Wow. Um, women would never wear trousers. That's sort of taken from the Bible to be something that is um, women looking like men and, and that's modest. Um, and certainly our clothing and our hair is considered to be a demonstration of our spirit or a demonstration of our godliness. Um, and our, our dress standards are fairly stringent. Um, men, I think, get it pretty easy compared to the women. Mm. Men 
sort of go, fly under the radar a bit. They're always well dressed, but um, always freshly shaven, always very well groomed um, in ironed pants and ironed shirts. But they don't, you know, they just sort of tend to fly under the radar a bit more. Um, I've got to say, yeah. it reminds me of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? Scary, huh? <laughs> I mean, were there punishments for women if, I mean, you know, in The Handmaid's Tale, it's very severe punishment if you don't do as you're told. Were there punishments? Um, not, not explicitly. You are just expected to conform because if you don't conform, you're not demonstrating the right spirit. Right. And so, I mean, I mean, yeah, that sort of comes to something we'll talk about later about the reason why I left in mm. that, you know, I did start to push those boundaries, you know, um, and I've spoken before about some of the funny things that I used to do. I used to tie dye my dresses instead of wearing the typically sort of floral ones. And, um, you know, my they were always modest. They were always the right length. They, you know, they never showed any flesh. But just the mere fact that I was tie dyeing them instead of keeping them in the, you know, the colours I should have been just push that that boundary just a little bit too far and yeah you find yourself isolated you find yourself shunned you find yourself no longer part of the inner circle and so um the punishment really is that you get cut off right um, so yeah it's not explicit but just gradually you know people start starting rumors about you and saying things like your spirit isn't right um you know i mean yeah i mean even things like I remember, you know, feigning illness at school when there was things like dancing or having to watch things on TV in the classroom because we were, you know, taught that those things were ungodly. Um, and, you know, if, if for instance, it got back to your family that you had participated in those things, it, you know, it was always frowned upon. It wasn't mm. so much punished but always like frowned upon that, oh, you know, well, you should have sat that out or you shouldn't have participated in that because our people don't do that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I guess it's more the emotional impacts of participating in those things. Exactly. I mean, to me, that sounds like emotional abuse. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And the scars from that stuff is pretty serious. I mean, yeah, most people who leave really, you know, come to reflect on incidents of things like that have happened to them. And, you know, they have PTSD, PTSD and they have, you know, severe outcomes of like having been, you know, treated in a certain way um, inside the group. So at what age did you realize you wanted to leave? And how long did it take you to leave? I understand you did manage to leave when you were 19, but did you just go one day or did it take a long time to work up the courage? Hey, honestly, I I didn't ever think I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. I never had a thought like, you know, I'm, you know I, I don't want this life. It was my life. It was my family's life. It was everyone I knew. It was my community. So I never, I never sort of thought, oh, well, I'm going to leave. It was more that over time I, I started to feel that I didn't belong and that actually they didn't want me. Right. So, yeah, it was more a combination. And there was a big event. I mean, there was a, not a big event, but an event that, which occurred, which, which kind of instigated it. But, no, I think I was 19 and in the few years before that I had made some decisions that kind of had put me on the wrong side of my community spiritually. Right. So things, you know, things which had resulted in, in things which would be considered not having the right spirit and not, not sort of acting in a way in alignment with the community. So things like deciding to finish high school um, and then deciding to leave home and our community, things like wanting further education, not getting married, 
you know, some things in those sort of crucial teenage, late teenage years that didn't kind of conform or sit comfortably with my community. So it was it was really a matter of me making a series of decisions that didn't sit right with them and then mm. gradually them shutting me off. And I guess the final straw for me was I was 19. Um, I'd left my community and I was living here in Melbourne and um, it's a notoriously cold and wet city. <laughs> and um, I was coming home from a Sunday meeting one day and I didn't have a car and it was bucketing down with rain and I was standing at the tram stop and watching my community just sort of drive past me as I was standing there in the rain. Oh, gosh. And I, I just, it just like this thing in my head just sort of snapped. I just, I honestly remember almost like a snap where I was like, like, why am I doing this? Like I'm standing here drenched and you're just driving straight past me like I don't exist. And I sort of just, there was just this moment in my head where I went, I don't, I don't want these people don't want me. Why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? You don't want me. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I guess at that point, just decided, well, I'm, I, I, I don't, I'm not coming back to this group, mm-hmm. to this particular group that I was living near and sort of the beginning of the end for me really because, it, yeah, I didn't realise that actually what would happen from there is that I would sort of then also not belong to our community at all, that I would, you know, lose my family and that I was in fact losing everything mm. um it was just me sort of in this moment going this doesn't feel right um so yeah um to answer your question I guess I made some life choices along the way in my late teens and it led me out I didn't I didn't sort of wake up one day and think I want to leave <laughs> right so when you left the truth what was it like transitioning back to normal life or reality for you how did you go about finding a new path for yourself in life? I understand that you went on to a career in accounting. How did you <laughs> go about doing that? Was it a natural passion or more of an economic decision? Um, well, I didn't realise there was a different life. I mean, the only life I'd ever lived was that one. And, not, you know, I had started to think about getting an education, but um, I, yeah, continued on at university. I, um, I decided that I, well, I needed to support myself. I needed to find a way to pay the rent. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just sort of looked at where you could find a job and um, that place happened to be in accounting at the time. And um, there were lots of jobs in accounting in the early early 2000s, like 90s, early 2000s. And so I, um, I literally, yeah, picked um, accounting so that I could get a job. And I, I guess I spent sort of 20, 20, the last 20 odd years since I was 19 working out how to live a normal life. So. Yeah, I, I had to learn how to get a haircut, how to, how to use a TV remote, like how to buy jeans. Um, but, you know, like I'd never worn jeans. I'm laughing because <laughs> I, I can't use TV remotes anyway. Like don't worry yeah. about that one. Yeah, no, true. Um, but, you know, also bigger things like, you know, I was brought up with a complete distrust of police, for instance. So, you know, it's learning how to trust authorities like police, how to feel comfortable to talk about um, your issues at the doctors, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came out of a group that, uh, like a child, really. Mm. I had no idea about a lot of things other people, you know, just knew how to do. And honestly, education was, was like a really big part of my journey out because I was able to go to university and meet interesting people and meet new people. And I was able to get a job as a, in a consulting firm as an accountant and, and literally that was about paying the bills and, you know, it paid well um, and, that was a simple, you know, I would have, I would have become a rocket scientist if that had gotten me a job, you know, like for me, it was about 
getting out, earning an income. And then I, you know, I had also committed to myself that I would do whatever my, my siblings needed to give them access to a different life as well. So for me, I, I would have done whatever it was needed to get a job. Um, and yeah, and now I guess I'm, I'm sort of 40 years old and I, I get now at 40, um, 20 years after I've left, sort of reassess and work out like, what am I good at? But it does take that long. It does take that long. I can imagine. I mean, did you seek help in terms of speaking to any kind of counsellor or therapist or like how did you emotionally start to reconnect with, I guess, just everyday people that weren't part of this community that you were brought up with? No, I didn't get formal help. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's for two reasons, I guess. One, I didn't have any vocabulary to describe what had happened to me and what was still happening to me. Right. So the process of leaving, um, probably um, the process of gradually un- unravelling and moving my- removing myself or people removing themselves from me probably took another five-plus years um, for gradually my family to sort of fade away and my community to fade away. And I, I didn't have the words to articulate what was happening at that point in time. And that's a lot, of, and that's actually a lot of what I do at the moment in in work that I do with fundamentalist women is giving them the vocabulary to describe what's happening, because you don't know how to explain to people with no, um, no interaction with groups like this what it is like to try and leave. I also, because of the massive distrust of authority, had no idea that you could go and speak about these things, that there were people you could speak to. Um, so yeah, it wasn't for a long time um, that I did get help. And then also it was, it was and, and it still is expensive to get help to, in specialist therapists that deal with things like sect, um, sect decompression um, mm. and helping people leave these groups. It was very expensive. And, you know, I, I was supporting myself for many years. I was putting every cent I could into my siblings for a lot of years. So, no, I didn't get the help that I should have. But also I, I sort of didn't know that it was there either. Um, and I guess I got, I got very good at compartmentalising. So I would put the things that were happening to me into a box. Right. And um, I would go to work. And, you know, in lots of ways, that's how I functioned. I mm. was very, very focused on, on working, on earning an income, on building a different life for myself. Mm. And I, I wouldn't allow myself to feel that loss and that grief um, and that trauma. So, yeah, that's been something very recent, um, probably in the last five years or so, that I've allowed myself to grieve. And then I've allowed myself to process those things that have happened. When you say you didn't have the vocabulary, what kind of vocabulary, can you give some examples of things that you might have, yeah, yeah that, you, that you're sort of talking about? So it's things like even knowing how to say, I come from a certain church or I come from a certain group. Right. So for us, we, don't, we, don't, we're out, we often say that our group has no name. That we um, we refer to ourselves as the truth, but to the outside, we're very secretive about who we are. Mm. And so, um, yeah, to even go to the doctors or to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and say, "Listen, I come from a group called the Truth. That 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 group believes in X, Y, and Z." I did not have the vocabulary to even explain what it was we believed. I could not have told you that we were fundamentalists. I could not have told you anything about what our belief system was, um, because we are taught to live those values and not to talk about them. So we just we just do not know how to explain what we believe. Wow. Um, 
And because it's so secretive, we're also taught not to name it um, and not to deny its existence, but also to just sort of fob people off when they ask about it. Um, so, yeah, naming it, um, understanding what we believe, being able to articulate that, that that's, that's all um, things that I've had to learn. Wow. So I understand that now you're very passionate about raising awareness about women inside fundamentalist groups. Um, as you said, you lived very controlled lives, surrounded yeah. by a lot of abuse. How do you go about helping other women and what other fundamentalist groups are out there that you're helping women to free themselves from? I can imagine that even once someone is out, like you said, it must take a lot of time to fully recover and regain a new sense of self. Would you agree? Can you talk me through this further? Yeah, it's interesting because um, mostly women from our communities don't really articulate feeling like they want to leave or feeling like there's anything to leave. Um, they, they, I guess, they come from a place where this is their whole existence and they don't really know how to articulate that something isn't working or that they don't feel good about it. They usually um, are consumed with guilt about something. They're usually quite depressed. They're usually looking for someone to talk to, but they don't even know what they want to talk about. Mm. So um, they just know that something doesn't feel right. But mm. I guess it covers a few different groups. Um, the ones that I tend to come into the most contact with are Jehovah's Witnesses. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably a bigger community of, they're probably just in sheer numbers, there's a larger number of them. Um, but also the exclusive brethren and the brethren here in Australia. Um, I, I come into contact with women um, and also young teenage women and teenage boys from that group, just starting to question and starting to just look for people who may be able to help them articulate um, and have conversations about what they might be able to do to live a different life. So, um, yeah, I think. Um, it's not, I mean, I certainly didn't know this growing up or even in the last, in the first 15 years of my time outside the group, is that it's not uncommon for high control groups um, to act in similar ways, you know, to shun people, um, to have very high standards and things like dress and, and appearance and um, very um, rigid rules around um, the way you live. And um, it, it, is problematic because it doesn't allow people to live independently. It doesn't allow people to have different thoughts and different um, different um, ideologies, mm. um, and it is damaging to people and not just women, but you know, overwhelmingly, it is women who suffer the most because mm. they have very strict gender roles, um, and the men can often live double lives, you know, um, and they can fit in a bit more, whereas the women stand out. Yeah. So when you supporting these other people if it's so secretive how do you go about finding them or they find you yeah interesting um and and it's really been very accidental um it's really been as a result of me speaking out and okay. as a result of me and, and I've got to be honest through my own extended family and friend network people mm -hmm. have heard about me and my experience of leaving um and they will usually look me up or find my details through somebody else mm -hmm. um 
being passed along to them. And as I said, they're not usually calling or leave or, or coming to see me or having conversations with me because they want to leave anything or because they're escaping anything. Mainly that they're just not feeling supported, mm-hmm. that they're wondering what else might be out there that they could think about. They're looking for materials to read. They're looking for somebody to have a coffee with. They're looking for someone to, you know, to help them understand things that's happening in their lives. And usually I have found probably 80% of the time there's something else going on in their life. They're sick. Um, they've lost their hair because of an illness. And so that puts them on the other side of, of the authority structures, right? Because they don't look the way they used to. And all of a sudden people start asking questions of them and their lifestyle. Mm. Um, they're usually coming into contact with something a bit on the darker side of the belief system. Mm-hmm. And they start realizing, oh, it's okay when you're on one side of it, but when you're on the other side of it, <laughs> it's not as easy. Um, and so they're looking for support. And they, yeah, they end up on my website. Someone gives them my telephone number, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, most of the time it's not that they're calling because they, you know, they're packed with a suitcase and they want to leave. It's more they're looking for somebody who'll help them speak the same language, someone um, who, help, who knows what it's like to transition out. Um, yeah, and, and I guess what I'm able to offer is the things I've found in the last 20 years, you know, whether that be counsellors who understand these religious nuances, mm. um, whether that be um, knowing what forms to take to Centrelink if you're thinking about leaving and, and getting your own financial support. Um, and, and honestly, if I reflect on it, this for me is multi-generational. So often a lot of women I speak to don't leave. Often they're speaking to me with the intent that maybe their children will leave. Um, And often they will pass my information on to their children because they want their children to have different options to them Um, or their their nieces or their nephews. Um, Yeah, so it's multi-generational for me. Just to go back a step, how long has the the truth existed? And how has it been... And is it an Australian sect or is it from overseas? Um, it was actually started in Ireland by a Scottish um, a Scottish preacher who sort of broke away from a different group. Mm. Um, and I haven't got the date in, in on me at the moment, but it's um, the eighteen the late eighteen hundreds. He sort of breaks away from this Scottish um, church and breaks out into Ireland and creates his own group. And from there, he kind of goes out across the Western world. Um, it's been in Australia since about the early nineteen hundreds. Um, so, and no, it's not just Australian, um, it is in most of the Western world and, um, yeah, certainly the UK, the US, Canada, South Africa, um, yeah, uh, South Korea, for instance, there's a reasonable following. So yeah, it's, um, but see the, the origins of it are very tightly, um, held secret amongst followers um very few people at least in my time in there knew that was the background we were always raised and taught that it was created by jesus and it's been there since the beginning of time so um it's sort of also part of their very secretive nature that actually we're not told about the origins either but what about sorry to, all these ideas are popping into my head but <laughs> what about the aspects of the Bible where Jesus embraces prostitutes and people who who may have done bad things? I mean, how does the church or the truth interpret Jesus's actions there? So we believe that anyone can be saved, but you need to enter the community and you need to come and live right. like us. 
Right. Um, and if you stray, if, for instance, I was to go back now, I, you know, I could probably prove myself and work my way back in again if I worked very hard to demonstrate that I had realised the error of my ways. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I guess on the inside you must adhere to very sort of strict protocols or, um, yeah, you're, you're not going to get into heaven. I wanted to ask, I mean, for women who may still be in fundamentalist groups who may be able to, I don't know if they can listen to podcasts or radio, they probably can't. But A lot of women um, do in secret. Okay. Um, or do, um, you know, when they're out um, or pretending to do something else. So, yeah, they do. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope they, they get onto this one. But perhaps, you know, what key piece of advice would you give to them to help them remain strong and to fight back or to take control of their own lives? Um, for me, it's about, again, the generational piece that actually leaving as an adult, and I've seen people leave as an adult and I can see how very, I mean, I was 19, but, you know, when I say adult, I mean in your, in your 30s and 40s and 50s. It is very difficult to mm. rebuild your life after a life inside that group. And mm. um, I think it's about building up um, building up a way of living that can support you if you want to leave. Um, it's, you know, it's things like making sure you have financial control of your, uh, have some kind of financial control. I mean, the, the reality is we come from regional and rural communities where a lot of the money is tied up in family farms and in family businesses. And when women leave, they often leave with very little financial backing or financial independence. And that's not ideal. So it's about things like having access to your own bank account. It's about things like thinking about what kind of work you might be able to do when you leave. Because if you haven't got a high school education to year 12, for instance, let alone some kind of, you know, trade or university education, that's a very difficult place to start from in life. Mm. So for me, it's about how do you empower your children um, to finish school and to get an education and to be able to have a career that they can fall back on to have financial independence? Mm -hmm. um, and how can you be supportive of them doing that um, without getting hung up on things like the length of their hair and the type of clothing they're leaving, yeah, they're wearing? Um, yeah, so it's it's sort of about having discussions about, you know, not everybody, it's, it, you know, people who don't look like you are not the devil. They're not um, damaged. They're not scary. They're not, you can, you can be a good person and not necessarily be inside that group. So you've also mentioned that you're an intersectional feminist. As this yeah. is an intersectional feminist podcast, can I ask how and when you realised you were a feminist? And how has it been a part of your journey? Well, you know that whole thing I've just told you? Mm. Well, I, bizarrely, as a 13-year-old, found a Jermaine Greer book in the school library. Oh. So at 13 years of age, I, I read The Female Eunuch. Okay. I was, um, and I think she spoke to me because I was this kind of, tomboy who wanted who loved to run and swim but was sort of stuck in this group that wouldn't let me wear trousers or pants for instance and so I just felt like I was stuck in the 1950s basically wearing these long floral dresses and um and yeah this this the female eunuch was basically my <laughs> entree into feminism 
I was 13 years old inside a fundamentalist group. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, and from there I, I guess I found Betty Friedan in the library and Gloria Steinem and a lot of other white feminists. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of my introduction into feminism. And then sort of along the way, I guess, in my early 20s, I, and I was always, you know, very much, it, it, you know, feminism absolutely shaped my journey out of the truth as well because I, you know, I pursued an education because of, you know, reading things by Jermaine Greer and Betty Friedan. Mm. And, you know, they, they helped me to question the lives of my older cousins, you know. I, I saw them get married very young. I saw them drop out of school. And so, yeah, they, they really shaped my decision to stay in school, to not marry early. And, yeah, so it, it's been fundamental really. Um, and then I guess probably in my early 20s I realised I didn't really fit this kind of classic mould of the white middle-class sort of American feminist because mm. my life experience was so different to those mm. women, even though they had been very influential in my, you know, in my experience of um, feminism. Mm. And then I started reading things from, I guess, more intersectional feminists like Bell Hooks and Mona Etowahi and Mickey Kendall. And, and I, you know, I found their lived experiences closer to my own. Mm. Um, so I, I guess I engage more with the, um, the, yeah, the black feminist journey and the um, things, you know, beyond the blonde sort of white middle-class woman. Yeah, it, I, to be honest, it took me back in the early years outside my community how many sort of women, mainstream women, didn't value feminism. I sort of had this strange idea that, you know, that everybody outside the truth must be a feminist. I mean, you know, it, it's still, I see, I see it as a bit strange that, that mainstream women often don't value feminism the same way I do. Mm. I feel the same way. We're on the same page there. <laughs> but, yeah, I was curious to know if you were able to read because for me reading was also a huge part of my upbringing and beginning to wonder about the world. And I was a very avid reader from a very early age. Um, it sounds like you might have been too, but did you have to kind of read in secret? Yes and no. Um, I, yeah, reading was a very big part of my upbringing because I didn't have access to TV and radio and music. So, the, yeah, I read a lot. Um, and the library was my safe haven really so you know I would go to the school library and read everything um, and I was a very good reader so I was reading things far beyond my age mm. when I started school I, I remember being given being told oh, you've finished all the kids books so now you can go and read the grade six books yeah so I was I was you know I'd devour anything um, but I it was not not ever explicitly said to me that I shouldn't be reading but mm -hmm. It wasn't ever encouraged, and so I never really spoke about the things I read, especially the things that were outside my age bracket. You know, like I would never have talked about the fact I was reading the grade six kids' books because I knew I was reading things that didn't fit comfortably with my community. Um, but yeah, I, I devoured, I devoured books. I've got to say, libraries are my safe haven too. I'm a big <laughs> fan of libraries; they're just quiet and full of books. But when you mentioned yeah. that you were, you know, this, your group had to wear long floral dresses, I was just reeling in horror. My producer, Brad, knows that I'm very much a rock chic kind of girl and I, I can't imagine wearing a floral dress ever. I'm like, <laughs> Keep it no. that way. They're quite ugly. <laughs> oh, my God. It just made me think Laura Ashley, 1980s. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, but I just can't imagine. Homemade, homemade, Laura Ashley, because we made all of our own clothes too. Oh, 
gosh. I'm sure my granny made me made something for me like that when I was a child, but I was probably like, do I have to wear it? If granny's around, yes. <laughs> but yeah. other than that, I was always a tomboy myself. Um, but before we finish, I just wanted to ask, how can my listeners find you, follow you, and show support for the incredibly inspirational work that you're doing? And if they want to, seek help from or work with you if they need to. Yeah, sure. So I have two pieces of work, I guess, that I do. One um, for fundamentalist women or people sort of seeking information about fundamentalist Christianity um, at lauramcconnell.com.au. Yep. So that's my um, my name with .com.au on the end. Mm-hmm. And then another one at fiercelady.com.au, which sort of profiles my work more broadly. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I would love for people to visit those sites, sign up to the newsletters. And it's really for me about understanding how to interact respectfully um, with people from fundamentals communities and being able to identify people leaving the groups because it's very traumatic and hard for people to leave. And um, I think the more people who are aware of these groups, um, the easier it is for those who think about leaving um, Mm. because we're not sort of starting from a base of nil to explain where we've come from. Mm. Well, that has been one eye-opening experience for me and I'm so grateful that you shared your journey with me and I really hope that you continue to, you know, it sounds like you've already been rebuilding your life but continue to keep growing and getting better and helping to self-empower other women and men who may be in these sorts of groups. So thank you so much, Laura, for joining me. Thank you for having me.